Yes, good morning, RCC family. It's so good to be back here with you this morning. Uh, most of you probably don't know me, but as Sherman said, uh, I go way back to 2010 with RCC. And in curiosity and preparation for today, I decided to search my email inbox, RCC. And my first reaction, oh boy, uh, cringeworthy. You know, I was expecting, and it's not cringeworthy because of you, but because of my 21-year-old self. I was expecting Apostle Paul-level letters to RCC as a missionary at NIU. That's not the case. Yet, I found that so many of you replied with just words of encouragement, always saying, we are praying for you. We see you. We believe in you. Even though I was feeling lack of confidence, at times scared, I was welcomed by this family. And so honestly, um, I don't think I'll be where I'm at today without this family. And also, there, uh, a lot of my replies say that thank you for food. So literally, you kept me alive. Because I was a poor, single, uh, young adult who didn't know what to do. And I still remember all the food at Elder Dave Cho's uh, house. So thank you. Thank you for all that. You know, all these years, as I was thinking about where I'm at today, um, just seeing God's faithfulness um, and the encouragement that you have given me, you know, my prayer today is that uh, the, the word of God and the promise of our Lord Jesus Christ will also hugely encourage you this morning. So if you have your Bible, if you have your phone, that's okay. Uh, open to 1 Corinthians 12. And I'll be kind of reference, referring to uh, different parts of 1 Corinthians as to explain the context. So have that open. Two weeks ago, a draft opinion of U.S. Supreme Court Justice, Justice Alito was leaked regarding overturning Roe v. Wade. Since then, there has been so many various reactions and responses from all sides. But what caught my attention is not what people are saying, but what might be underneath the reactions of people, the underlying fear it reveals, a great fear of apocalypse, the end of the time. Michael Ware from Christianity Today appropriately describes the state of mind. He says, the idea of an apocalypse is terrifying for a people and culture under the pretension that everything is under our control and that our best hope is to continue to feel in control. In politics today, apocalyptic thinking on the right and the left is based on an apocalypse that is sure to harm us but it's not so unwillingly that our total control cannot avert it. You know, whether it's related to political issues or the ongoing global pandemic or a, a possible recession or threats of nuclear war or the reckoning of evangelicalism, they all have been challenging our illusion of control and also raising the existential fear Ultimately, Ware's uh, observation raises an important question. How do we find hope in the gospel? The good news that the kingdom of God is here 
already but not fully yet. How do we find in Jesus this hope during this tumultuous and divisive time? Where it goes on to say that, meanwhile, the Christian idea is nearly the opposite. Embracing apocalypse would not only prepare us for the reality of the world to come, but it involves an acceptance of the world as it is and our role in it. The church of Corinth had very similar struggle and question in that time. Paul addresses questions about the resurrection of the dead and the resurrected body in chapter 15 as they're thinking about the end time already. Not to mention the severe persecution they're facing from Rome. Furthermore, their theological differences were causing divisions in the church. And the vulnerable and the marginalized were getting hurt. Their political and theological differences became the uncommon grounds that they separately stood on. Making the common ground that Jesus provided a battleground. So what were the differences, the uncommon grounds that led to divisions? First thing that we see in 1 Corinthians is actually tribalism. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, 12 through 13a, it says, One of you says, I follow Paul. Another, I follow Apollos. Another, I follow Cephas. Still another, I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Most likely, the Corinthians aligned themselves with specific personalities and elevated these leaders to be more, quote-unquote, spiritual than others and identified themselves with these tribes. It is not explicit, but very unlikely, it's the failure of Paul or Peter, apostles' leadership, but rather, more so, the Corinthians are seeking status. Uh, by showing allegiance to specific leaders. And the tribalism that um, is happening in Corinth, it's birthing unhealthy loyalty that chooses reputation of these leaders over others. It breathes that us and them mentality, that your people, my people mentality. And Paul asks a sobering question. Is Christ divided. Second uncommon ground in the division, the difference that we see is elitism. Perhaps this is at the crux of the most of the divisions, and Paul strongly addresses it throughout the letter. Superiority, exclusivity, selectiveness for those who are more spiritual, quote-unquote, than the others. In chapter 8, Paul directly talks about the, quote-unquote, the weak those who are insecure about their standing before God and their lack of confidence in community membership. Instead of being reminded of God's beautiful covenant that all peoples, all tribes, all nations and tongues is for them, they were being misled and deemed unworthy by the quote-unquote elitist or the arrogant or the knowers. This mindset even permeates into the division between the rich and the poor in chapter 11. 
It leads to abuse of the communion table where the true fellowship with Christ is non-existence. Furthermore, uh, finally, in chapter 12, the elitism also influences and misinterprets the functions and intent of spiritual gifts. The beautiful gifts given by God to build up the community are wielded to demean and devalue God's people. They were divided in their differences in spiritual maturity, social economic status, uh, and, and even the gifts of the Holy Spirit. You see, if tribalism breeds unhealthy loyalty and celebrities, elitism births celebrity leaders uh, that will abuse spiritual power and unhealthy leadership. Perhaps uh, we as the church or even different local churches in our area are not divided over Paul or Apollos or Peter nor spiritual gifts. But I think sadly this sounds too, too familiar in our time and day. A loyalty that chooses an institution's reputation over people and victims. Shaming the victims. Superiority that causes tribes and creates celebrities. And we see and hear about people abusing spiritual authority. Church, today my heart is deeply grieved and saddened that we see these realities when this is not what Jesus is about. This is not what the church is supposed to be about. To be honest, in this season, there have been times where I just want to give up. Just feeling utter hopelessness. Not only because I feel that the apocalypse is on the outside, but also I feel the apocalypse inside. The gloom, the doom, also in me. God, would I ever get better with my mental health struggles? God, would I ever find that promised hope and, and health that you talk about in your word? Perhaps some of you resonate with that this morning. and You feel the gloom and the doom and the apocalypse inside of you or outside of you, in your family, in your community, in your friendship, wherever it is. But brothers and sisters, I'm just taking day by day. And each day I'm choosing to believe that Jesus is alive and that his kingdom is here. That I choose to believe that we're not doomed because Jesus Christ indeed established the common ground for us where we can flourish in his death and resurrection. Ephesians 2, 13, 14 says, But now in Christ Jesus, you who are once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. Amen. And our uncommon grounds, our, our differences our different upbringings, our different values, our stories and families, experiences, food, clothes, fashion, you name it. All those things are redeemed in Christ. He's 
precious blood has redeemed us, restored us, renewed us, because we are a new creation. Jesus became the ground that we and others can visit and step in and and lean in and taste the fullness and the beauty of his body. So coming to today's passage, Paul reminds the Corinthians who is building his church. In verse 18, it says, But in fact, God has placed the parts in the body, every one of them, just as he wanted them to be. Verse 24, God has put the body together, giving greater honor to the parts that lacked it. Jesus Christ is the head, and he is building his church, and the gates of hell cannot overcome it. And we get to partake in his glory and the power as his body. That is such a beautiful picture of who he is. He himself is our peace. By his wounds, by his broken body, we are healed. By his precious blood, we are redeemed and restored and renewed. Jesus is alive. He is living and active king, and his kingdom is here. So how, so how do we do it? How do we have that hope in Jesus? We know this truth. We've tasted it. We've seen it. We've felt it. So how do we find hope in Jesus during this tumultuous time? What does this practically look like? The answer is here. The answer is here. Okay, not in this junior high school. Education is important, but no. It's us. It's the church. All the local churches and the universal, the church, is the hope of the world. The incarnational embodiment of our Lord Jesus Christ that we get to experience with one another is how we find hope. So we find hope as we see people and as we honor one another in our differences. So first, what does it look like to love by seeing people in their differences? Let's look at verse 12 through 14. Notice how Paul makes it abundantly clear that all of them are members of the body. And body is one. So though there are many, there are one body. In other words, if you are a body part, but not in the body, you are nobody. Get it? Right? Nobody. <laughs> many members equals one body, and one body equals many members. They're intertwined, inter related, interdependent, and cannot be separated. Like the vertical relationship that we have with God, um, and, and that intertwines with our horizontal relationship with one another. Why? Because, Paul says right here, because we all have been baptized into one body in one spirit. Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, all were made to drink one spirit. This is the direct opposite of the tribalism that we see in the early uh, 1 Corinthians that Paul addresses. It is not a baptism of Apollos or Paul or Peter. No, it's the living and active Spirit of God that has transformed our dead hearts to a beating heart. It's the living and active Spirit of God that we drink 
No, it's not some sort of Kool-Aid that we drink, but it's the power of God that raised Jesus from the dead. And that's our source. And that defines who we are as children of God. So here Paul, also Paul is not saying that just because you have been transformed in Christ that your culture, your ethnicity, your status does not matter. He's not saying that. He's not saying those things are erased. But that God has empowered and washed and cleansed. And now we get to have a common shared experience in the spirit, in one spirit. And no human distinctions or social contract can stop the common experience of the Holy Spirit. This, this truth absolutely changes how we see people. Do you see other members uh, from infants to elderly uh, through the eyes of the Holy Spirit? Have you thought about that? I know we talk about eyes of the Jesus a lot, but have you thought about through the eyes of the Spirit? Because Paul says that in 1 Corinthians 2, the Spirit searches all things, even the deep things of God. And this is what we speak, not in words taught by human wisdom, but in words taught by the Spirit, explaining spiritual realities with spiritual top words. How beautiful is that we have an access to the Spirit who searches all things, even the groaning in our hearts that tells us and that we can cry out, Abba, Father. One of my favorite things that uh, I do um, is simply sitting down with people on one-on-one over tea or coffee or food, uh, which I can make a pretty good argument that it's a spiritual discipline to eat together. But that's another sermon for another day. But what I love about spending quality time with people sitting down is that it's not just me, but the person and myself. We have an opportunity to tap into his spirit. I love praying for the spirit of God to illuminate and inspire and encourage and guide our conversations to deepen our fellowship. Especially when there are differences, it's an opportunity to experience more of the beauty of the diverse body of Christ. When I actively listen and ask good questions, I can better validate their feelings and further understand their worldviews and also their values. And also, there is a profoundly satisfying joy when both of us have that aha moment. When the fogginess of this world becomes a little bit more clear and you begin to see that, oh, there's a deeper worries in my heart. Oh, there's actually a fear that has caused me to do this. Or it could be a, a deeper contentment or joy that you get to celebrate together. Do you know what I'm talking about? That aha moment? Like as you're talking and processing, you're like, wow, I never thought about it in that way. And thank you. Now, if I don't get it, or there's a misunderstanding, whatever or not, I'll make sure to take a mental or physical note. And I'll follow up for another meal, because meals are great. Or coffee or tea. Or different activities. Like Pastor John said, let's go on a walk together. God walk, right? For me, let's go on a bike ride together. Because 
biking is superior to walking. <laughs> but could you imagine if we had that humble posture of listening to the Spirit and step into these conversations together, expecting that God's going to show up? For some of you, already the Spirit has been nudging. Maybe I should call that person, or maybe I should grab that person after church service and say, hey, can we have coffee together? You've been on my mind. I want to encourage you. Step in. Don't be afraid. Know that the Spirit of God wants to build you up and unite us as a beautiful expression of Jesus Christ. So do we listen to people with the astute ears of Jesus Christ? Do we see people with the eyes of Jesus Christ and the eyes of the Holy Spirit? Do we listen? Just as Jesus had compassion on the crowds, even though he knew that they were following him for the wrong reason, he did not have condemnation. He had compassion because he saw that they are sheep that are harassed and helpless without a shepherd. So let's remember that God listened and saw us first through our disfigured and wounded bodies. And he, also, he saw that, he, that we were created in his image. And let's step in and do that together. Second thing that we see uh, to find hope in Jesus is that as we honor one another, and honoring is elevating the unheard voices in their differences. Look at verse 15 through 26, the rest of the passage. Paul presses the body imagery further with an allegory in verses 15 and 26. What an intriguing story. <laughs> and try to picture this with me. And I think this was the intent of Paul. It's kind of gross to think about this. Where the foot, your foot, if you have a foot phobia, I am so sorry. But think about your foot talking to the hand and saying, because I'm not a hand, I do not belong to the body. Or picture the ear talking to the eye. Because I'm not an eye, I do not belong to the body. To both, Paul says, that would not make any less a part of the body, right? Note that the ear is not saying, I want to be an eye, or the foot is not saying, I want to be a hen, but rather they feel insignificant compared to the visible eye or their more used hand. Therefore, they do not feel that they're part of the body. They don't belong. When Paul repeats, that would not make it any less a part of the body, what he is doing is he's elevating the unseen, the unheard members of the body. And he's saying that you matter. You matter. And you're a vital part of the function of the body. And without you, we are nobody. Here, I think about the majority culture overlooking the minority culture. For instance, who do you think we elevate and value more? Formerly educated or informally educated? Married or single? Older or younger? And I also think about uh, the wounded or the victims. Are we listening and validating their stories? Are we quicker to defend and justify one side over the other because we think that the other is more valuable to the body of Christ? When we as a body begin to make one of these members feel like they do not belong here, 
that they do not, do not matter, we are actually missing out on so much. I have walked away filled with way more wisdom spending time with someone who was informally educated through the school of life. My single friends and the youth teach me what it means to have a deeper spiritual friendship. And recently, the courageous victims of sexual and spiritual abuse have been borrowing Mary Dimuth words, my tutors, to lead me, lead my heart to the heart of Christ. They're my tutors to teach me how to shepherd the broken, and they are valuable. So thank you so much for your courage. Church, drawing near and elevating the unseen and unheard is the very heart of God. We know this. Though the Lord is exalted, he looks kindly on the lowly. The lofty, he sees them from afar. Psalm 138. The Lord is close to the brokenhearted and save those who are crushed in spirit. Psalm uh, 34. But God is so rich in mercy, he loved us so much that even though we were dead because of our sins, he gave us life when he raised Christ from the dead. But not only he gave us a life, he raised us from the dead along with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms because we're united with Christ Jesus. That's the beautiful picture of elevating the unheard, the um, unknown, or people who are not so visible in our body. The second thing we learn about honoring is, is the rest of the passage, how the leadership needs to intentionally give platform to the unheard voices so that the whole body can lament and celebrate together. Look at verse 17. Paul goes on to, uh, with a more freaky, punchy imagery. If the whole body were an eye, what would the sense of hearing be? If the whole body were an ear, what would the sense of smell be? Verse 21. The eye cannot say to the hand, I don't need you. And the head cannot say to the feet, I don't need you. Picture a gigantic eyeball just up here leading worship. Or picture a gigantic ear <laughs> sitting right here. <laughs> yeah, pretty disgusting. But that's the whole point that Paul is trying to show you and show us. You know, uh, Paul, the eye and the head are often metaphors for those in leadership roles who are likely to be more affluent or better educated. Thus, Paul is directly calling the leaders of Corinth and saying that they, um, he's giving a, a, a picture of how dysfunction it looks, how disgusting it could be. And he's saying that the contrary to what is disgusting is the beauty of the fullness of the body and saying, you will be contrary to this by saying, I have a need for you. That you need me and I need you. And that language is a language of transparency and accountability. right? For the leadership to say, I need you. I need your accountability. I need you to uh, make sure that all the things I say is something that I will do. And there's a transparency because there's an intertwined relationship as the leaders and the lay leaders and everyone 
uh, is becoming the, the body of Christ. Not only that, Paul exhorts them to elevate, give greater honor to the parts that lack it. Leaders are called to see and share their platforms. That's what our Lord Jesus Christ has done, clearly laid out in Philippians 2. And also, not only that, uh, especially the, they're called to be honoring the ones who are honorless, more so, so that there be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another, so that if one member suffers, everyone knows about it and are able to suffer together. On the flip side, if one member rejoices, all can rejoice. There's a lament and praise as a body of Christ. So brothers and sisters of RCC, I just want to encourage you as a beautiful local expression of the bride of Christ, prayerfully discern and dialogue with one another. What would it look like in this place to pursue an elevating and honoring the unheard voices and to continue to say, I need you and you need me. And I feel like you guys have been already doing this. I love that last Sunday you honored all the mothers. And I hear the word honor actually from up here a lot. And I love that language. A sense of elevating others and lowering yourself. And I love that you're honoring even the uh, people uh, that works in the frontline workers working in Bolingbroke Christian Health Center. And also, I'm not sure if you guys still do this, but when I was here, at the end of the service, you would look into each other's eyes and awkwardly sing this blessing song. But there's something beautiful about that moment because you're saying, hey, you matter. I need you. You need me. Like, we're a family. We're a faith family. And so it doesn't have to be that song, (laughs) but think about what are some ways, right? What practices and structures and policies that will allow all members of this church, their voice can be heard? And then to think about whose voice is missing um, and can be invited to the fellowship and the, the leadership table. How are you intentionally featuring stories and testimonies of non-majority members at your gatherings, social media, website, especially members of society whose experiences and perspectives are often dismissed and largely go unheard. And so as you're in this season of transition, and I love that you guys have a retreat coming, I think that would be a sweet place to discern and dialogue and step in to the common ground, the solid rock ground of Jesus Christ together. Undoubtedly, we see the growth of fear and control in our world today. I think all of us feel that. However, fear does not have the final word because perfect love casts out fear. Paul concludes his compelling vision of local church uh, by saying this at the end of chapter 12. And yet, I will show you the most excellent way. The most excellent way is God's perfect love. It is seeing and honoring one another in Christ. So let me also conclude uh, by reading the marvelous picture of God's love for us in 1 Corinthians 13. And really, I didn't talk to Pastor John about this, and he did this after that song. I felt the same thing. And I just want you to 
close your eyes and bow with me. And I want you to picture, as I'm reading 1 Corinthians 13, just picture that first love that you felt from Jesus, from God, or even from others. So pray with me. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects. It always trusts. Always hopes. Always perseveres. Love never fails. And now these three remain. Faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. God, we thank you so much for your promise that you are building your church and that you have clearly demonstrated this love to us. God, thank you that all of us matter in your kingdom, in your church, that we are all vital and integral part of your body. And I pray that you will strengthen and encourage and give wisdom to RCC as they continue to pursue your love, as they see one another, as they honor one another. May they do that in the rock-solid ground of Jesus Christ. Would you be with them, encourage them, and strengthen them? I pray all this in Jesus' name.